welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Everybody, this is Dr. Daryl Ray. He is uh, talking with us today about religion and sexuality, and I'm so excited to have him here because he is a renowned author and has started several organizations that are focused on helping folks recover from religion. So, uh, Daryl, thanks so much for being here. I am glad to be here, Anna. I've been listening to your podcast for the last few months, and I, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. You have some good stories on here. <laughs> well, enjoy is a is a generous way to <laughs> talk. About yeah, maybe that. that's maybe that's not the right <laughs> word, but anyway, I was uh, I, I listened to more than one episode, so that means I was doing something was clicking. Right. With me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, tell me a little bit about what you do. Well, at this point in time, I seem to be working uh, many hours a day uh, as the president and founder of Recovery from Religion, which I founded back in 2009. But that takes a lot of my time, which I love. I wouldn't do it if I if I didn't. And it really is enjoyable to help people deal with the, the consequences of leaving any religion, you know, whether it's Hinduism or Baptists or Catholic, we don't care. We'll help anybody. So that takes a big part of my time. I still... Uh, I, I used to be a clinical psychologist, licensed clinical psychologist. I I have I haven't done that in quite a while. I just mainly do life coaching, and I don't do a lot of that. Pretty selective about the clients I take on, but I do enjoy I do enjoy that part. That was um that was a big part of my career in the past was uh, executive coaching, and I really find that rewarding, especially if you can make a big difference in a very short period of time. Yeah. So I, I do that. Plus, I founded the Secular Therapy Project, which takes a small amount of my time. But we've got good teams running all of these organizations. I, I do very little, actually. So that's that's part of it. And then I walk my dog every day, at least. <laughs> I, I, am, sure. I am retired, so I can I have more time, control over my time and I really uh, can put it where I want to put it. Yeah. So you mentioned recovering from religion uh, and that's recoveringfromreligion.org. Right. Tell me a little bit about like what that project is and, and what your focus is. Well, I started it in 2009 after I published my book, The God Virus. Mm -hmm. uh, I had just was overwhelmed with people saying, I need help. I, I need to mm. talk to somebody. And that led to me starting uh, a local peer support group I led here in town. And uh, after doing that a couple of weeks, I realized this was, <laughs> this was much bigger than just having a peer support group. Uh, very first session uh, I did at back room of a local restaurant. 11 people showed up and I only knew one of those people. And it, three hours later, people have been crying and pouring the souls out. And just all I did was ask, how did religion hurt you? And how have you benefited from leaving? And I just got a tidal wave of emotion. Mm. And that told me at that moment that this this was this was very important. And so that that gave me the idea to, to just start building an organization. And and yeah. we're at now we're we're about 300 plus or minus it changes every day uh, volunteers. Uh, we have almost 700 registered therapists in the sector therapy project, which is a part of recovering from religion. We are we cover about 18 time zones around the entire planet. We literally have volunteers from Moscow to Perth, Australia. 
Uh, of course, the majority of them are in the Western Hemisphere um, in North America, but we're we're expanding in big time in Australia, New Zealand, and places like Argentina. We've got a pretty good number of volunteers who have Spanish-speaking skills and even got volunteers in Latvia, <laughs> Latvia of all places. <laughs> so if, if somebody if somebody goes to your website and gets on the chat, mm-hmm. they'll be connected with one of those volunteers? They will. They will. We try to, we try to have somebody available 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. If you don't get in the first time, keep trying. I keep it a try at a different time because our volunteers are just that. They don't get paid. Sure. And if and we, we have small group meetings that meet literally face to face in places like Seattle or Dallas. And we have a lot of programs. If somebody needs help, we got a program that can help them. It can be a virtual program. You can sign in to the Sydney, Australia virtual meetup mm-hmm. if you want to. You can sign into the Philadelphia one and join them. Uh, or if you're in Seattle, you can go attend one that's in a coffee shop and actually see people and face-to-face make relationships. Very cool. Plus, you can chat in. You can call in. We have five direct phone lines from five different English-speaking countries from South Africa to Australia. And then you can chat in with us from any country on the planet. And we'll take a call or a chat from anybody. We don't care what religion you're getting out of. We don't even care if you're wanting to stay in religion. We literally just today had a dedicated Christian chat in with us. And we're not going to try to talk them out of their religion. That's not our job. Uh, Their problem was they don't believe what their parents believe anymore. And they wanted to know, how do I tell my parents? I don't believe in this anti-science and anti-abortion stuff you taught me. Mm. I still want to be a Christian. I still love my Jesus and my God. And so we just helped them brainstorm ideas. We didn't say anything about, you know, you'd be better off being an atheist or anything like that. Our volunteers are very, very well-trained. They get a lot of training before we let them even come close to a client. They're not therapists, of course, but they do know, you know, they have a good understanding of what we do and why we do it. Yeah. So that brings up the question, why do you do this work? I know that you mentioned your book, The God Virus, and certainly I think anybody who hears that title kind of might get the impression that... You're you're anti God. Is that am I hearing that? Well, I'm not. I'm not personally anti God because there ain't no God. You know, I mean, there's no proof in my estimation. So it's not a matter of whether I'm against God or not. I'm against indoctrination. I'm against people being told what they can and can't do from the time they're born. Mm. So if you're born a Hindu, you're gonna think I'm anti Shiva. If you're born a Muslim, you're gonna think I'm anti Allah. No, I'm just anti indoctrination. Let people teach children good critical thinking skills, teach them how to think, don't teach them what to think. And that's that's what we're all about at Recovering from Religion. Hmm. People constantly call into us and say, I, I don't know how to understand evolution because I was told that's the devil made that concept and I'm going to go to hell if I even read a book about it. And yet here I am. I don't want to be a Baptist anymore. How do I think about evolution? Right. And we'll give them resources. We're not going to say, well... <laughs> you know, you should believe X, Y, or Z. We're going to say, here's resources. Go read or watch this YouTube or go to this conference or, you know, there's lots of things out there to help you learn good critical thinking skills. Mm, Okay. So I'm assuming you have some sort of personal experience with indoctrination. Otherwise, why would you be so into this work? Well, that's an interesting concept and question. And because we have a lot of our volunteers that were 
were never religious and yet they really? still want yeah we've got a lot of lifelong atheists that are volunteers for us so i wasn't one of those unfortunately i uh, i was i was raised in a very religious family i would call them semi fundamentalist uh, we were in church every time the doors were open practically but you know they didn't cram religion down our throats quite as much as as what a lot of poor people get in you know in a baptist church or a Jehovah's Witness, we weren't anything near that bad. Mm. But uh, I, my parents were very religious. I never believed. I was just one of those kids that never quite believed everything he was told. I mean, to the degree that by the 12 years old, I was learning all about evolution and, and talking to my mom and my grandfather about evolution. And they just thought, this is horrible, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> this child is uh, is going to go to prison. <laughs> He's going to be a rebel rouser and all <laughs> Uh -huh. But fortunately, they didn't condemn me too much. They let me go my own way. And uh, so from 12 years of age, I just wasn't buying everything, and though I was very committed to helping people. And as a result, I went to college. I got a degree in anthropology, sociology. But then I went on to seminary because I thought I wanted to be a minister. And I got a two-year degree in religion at Scarrett College for Christian workers. It does not exist anymore. It went out of business about 20 years ago. And... Um, after two years of that, I realized it's pretty much all bullshit. So I, I moved, I moved on, um, hmm. stayed religious for most of my adult life until I got divorced. My wife was religious. She wasn't super religious, but she wanted to keep going to church. So we always went to the most liberal church we could find. And uh, that seemed to work, you know, for raising kids. If I had it to do over again, I'd probably not do it that way. But, you know, when you're stuck in a family, her family was super fundamentalist. Mine wasn't, but hers was. Hmm. So there's there's a bubble you're in and you can't get out of a conceptual yeah. bubble and and it's it's dangerous it's difficult consequences for leaving are problematic I mean yeah. I'm not telling you anything you don't know and you haven't heard from many of your other people but I never personally suffered that much um, getting divorced was a good thing because I could then go my own way and I could interact with my children my own way I didn't have to do it within the confines of some religious construct. Hmm. So I've been reading the God virus. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm in the midst of it. And and the biggest, my biggest takeaway so far is just the different ways that religion is sort of baked into our culture. Can you say a little bit about that for folks who maybe aren't familiar with the idea? Well, yeah. And I use, I use a concept that I got from Richard Dawkins uh, writings called the memes and memetics. The notion that a meme, and of course, everybody sees memes these days on the internet, but that is not what the original meme was supposed to be. A meme is simply a unit of culture. You know, it's a it's a component of culture that wants to get from my brain to your brain. Mm -hmm. It it wants to spread. So, you know, we've all gotten a song stuck in our head. You, know, you can't get rid of it. You heard the Beatles, you know, some Beatles song last week, and it's still playing in your head. You can't get rid of it. Well, that is a meme. And that meme got from the Beatles' heads through the radio or the internet into your head. Mm -hmm. And we capture memes in our brain almost like a flycatcher catches flies. And some of those memes are not very good for us. Some of those memes are really good for us. I mean, I want to catch the meme of algebra if I'm going to be a mathematician, right? That's not a bad meme to get. <laughs> but I probably getting the meme of Joe's witnesses is going to surround me into a new cage, into a conceptual cage that I can't get out of. Mathematics does not put you in a cage that you can't get out of. 
So many of the concepts that religion carries are designed to put you in a cage, the Catholic cage, the Baptist cage, the Hindu cage, the Muslim cage. And that's what I was exploring was how do religions get from one brain to the next brain? And we know a lot about viruses. We certainly learned a lot about them in the last two or three years with COVID. Hmm. And what I noticed in my research was that religions spread a lot like viruses spread. They go from one brain to another brain. Instead of it being my respiratory system that catches COVID, it's my gray matter in my brain that catches the meme of Jehovah's Witnesses or the meme of Catholicism. And I shouldn't call it a meme. I should call it a meme-plex because Catholicism is a bunch of memes that all hang together. Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, hundreds of different memes that all hang together. So if you understand how political, religious, music, I mean, all these things spread from brain to brain, and they have to spread or they will die. For example, in evolutionary biology, if, if an organism doesn't adapt to its current environment, it's not going to survive. The same thing is true of religions. So in upstate New York in the 1820s and 30s, there were 128 different religions got started in this one area called the Burned Over District. We, we now call it that, the Burned Over District, because about every month or so, a new religion would start and everybody would catch that religion, just like catching a cold. It was like COVID going across upstate New York. Out of those 128 religions, only three survive today. One is Jehovah's Witnesses, one is Mormonism, and one is basically Seventh-day Adventists. All those other religions died just like a virus. The COVID virus we got three years ago is not the one we're getting now. The old one is dying out and the new ones are thriving because viruses have to constantly evolve to keep ahead of your immune system and religions have to do the same thing. Religions have to constantly evolve and get from one brain to the next in order for them to survive because religions reside in our brains. <laughs> if it can't get in there, it's going to die. Okay. That definitely is a different way of conceptualizing how religion gets communicated and shared from one person to the next. Um, I think the, the virus analogy though, is certainly a negative one. And so, you know, unlike maybe the concept of evolution that does spread that way, what, what are the negative impacts of the memeplex of religion? Well, it really impacts your sexuality. There's, there's not a patriarchal religion on this planet that doesn't tell you what you can and can't do with your body. Mm. And, and they're, they're not the same. And the Catholics' view of sexuality is different than the Hindus, but they're both equally oppressive and not natural. They're not related to anything scientific about human sexuality. So number one thing that I have heard throughout my career is how religion oppresses people based on primitive, I mean, really primitive Bronze Age concepts about what sex is. Hmm. I mean, we're still living with this today. The second thing is religion puts you in a box based on fear and trauma. Early on, you get told that you are going to hell if you don't believe what we tell you. You get told that demons are possessing you because you don't obey your parents, hmm. that you're a bad person, that your body's bad, that you were born sinful, that you're a worthless piece of crap. Uh, we even have lots of songs, you know, Amazing Grace saved a wretch like me. You name it, the Christian, the Muslim, the Hindu, all these religions 
are so down on us as physical beings and denies our sexuality, denies our normal thinking processes and psychological development processes. So as a result, you get children who are, third point here, traumatized. And they leave childhood and adolescence with some real issues that they need help with. I mean, it could be suicide ideation. It could be depression. It can be uh, hate for their own bodies. It can be hate for their sexuality or fear of their sexuality hmm. or fear of getting better educated. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses basically condemn you if you go to college. So there's, there's lots of these things that people get into adulthood and they need help and they can't find the help. Oftentimes, because there's nobody willing to help them challenge the beliefs that put them in that cage in the first place. A Jehovah's Witness is living in a conceptual cage. And so is a Catholic. Don't let anybody fool you. Catholicism is a conceptual cage that traps a lot of people. Now, there's people who are Catholic are not trapped or not seriously trapped. But I know a lot more Catholics that are trapped in the notion that abortion's a horrible thing and you're a murderer then I know Catholics that don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And same thing for Buddhists. Don't let anybody tell you that Buddhist doesn't have a mimetic trap, a conceptual framework that traps you. I mean, for example, the Dalai Lama thinks homosexuality is unnatural and, you know, it's against any kind of LGBTQ stuff. Everybody loves the Dalai Lama. Nobody talks about how he condemns something he himself supposedly never does. I mean, the Dalai Lama is even against masturbation. Wait a minute. Hold on. You know, virtually every mammal masturbates, including the dog that wants to hump you in your own house. The <laughs> masturbation is really the most fundamental sexual act you probably ever do. And yet religions of all kinds try to control that or condemn it. Hmm. Do you see any positive impacts of these religious frameworks or is it all negative? Well, obviously, it's not all negative or wouldn't have survived. Uh, but let's just take, for example, what does religion do with the money you give it? If you're reading the God Bearers, you may or may not have gotten to that chapter where I, I break down the budget of the church, the church I went to, mm -hmm. which had a multimillion dollar budget. And when you broke it down into its component parts, you'll find out that most of the money went to pay for the church upkeep, maintenance, building costs went to pay the ministers to proselytize and preach, 5%, five cents out of every dollar went to actually help someone. If you think about it, they were given, you know, 10% of all the money that came in went to, say, a mission. Well, if you look at what the missionary do with that money, they gave people Bibles. They built a church building. They didn't dig a well. They didn't help people with housing. They didn't provide better health care. No, none of that stuff happens. And so of all the money my church brought in from my parents and people like my parents, there's 5% actually went to provide good health care or help somebody dig a well in another country or, you know, get through a homeless period in, in our own community. Churches waste most of their money. In fact, if you were to go and look at the budget of, say, the Red Cross or, you know, some other public charity, you would be appalled if 50% of their money went to administration and overhead costs. And yet when you look at religion, 95% of that money goes to administration and overhead costs. So, okay, I could agree that 5% of what religion does is good. The other 95% doesn't seem to actually do any good except take people's money. Mm. 
some churches will take a person's last penny. There's even, you know, the widow's might in the New Testament praises a woman for giving her last penny to the church, to God, when she is probably starving or her children weren't going to get to eat that mm-hmm. night. And I know churches that will take the poorest person in that congregation's last dime. And when that person comes back to him and says, I need help because I just lost my job, or my child has an illness and he can't go to work, they say, well, you lazy, you should get out and get a better job. You know, <laughs> if you want to make an argument that religion is good, I'm not going to say it's totally bad, but 95% doesn't seem to work very well. Yeah, it doesn't balance out necessarily. <laughs> No, it sure doesn't. Why can't I take that dollar and give it somewhere else? I know it's going to actually dig a well or get kids vaccinated. Yeah. Why do I want to give it to a church that's going to preach hellfire and brimstone at me every Sunday and tell me I'm a worthless piece of shit and sexually, no matter what I do, I'm wrong. I mean, there's just so much. Yeah. So so speaking of which, your second book uh, that's related to religion is called Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. And I'm really interested to hear your perspective on that. I mean, how does sexuality play into all this? Yeah, well, uh, I don't quote Richard Nixon very often. Uh, I grew up with, unfortunately, during Richard Nixon's time. And he had a saying that said, if you've got them by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. And that's what religion does. Religion grabs you by your sexuality because you cannot help being a sexual human being. Every cell in your body is sexual. So you are going to have drives. You're going to have hormones. You're going to have endorphins, all sorts of stuff that's going on with you as you go through the normal developmental stages of being a human being. Testosterone is going to flow. Estrogen is going to flow. It's going to influence the brain. It's going to influence other parts of your body. It's going to influence how you view yourself, too. There's so much going on through the endocrine system, through the neurological system, and also within the framework of a culture that we are born into. So these are things that church realizes, oh, if we can take control of this child's sexuality and teach them that they are they're sinful, they were born sinful, And that even touching themselves is a sin. Self-pleasure is a sin. Self-forgiveness is a sin. Hmm. You know, all all these things about self-care, we're teaching them that's all sinful. Wow. That That is a horrible message. And most people who've gone through any kind of, especially high control or fundamentalist religions, have gotten this incredible message that distorts how they view their sexuality, how they view other people's sexuality. I've got a photograph of a tree. It's just a few hundred feet from my house. I live kind of in a forested area. And this tree, a tree goes up and it's crooked. And then it goes up again. So you got a tree that's crooked by four feet. Then it goes back up again. What happened to that tree was about the time I moved into the house I'm at, a storm came through and and knocked a big tree on top of this smaller tree. Mm-hmm. It it didn't force it to the ground, but it really forced it down to a horizontal position. Well, then after a few years, the tree starts growing back up towards the sunlight. So that's why you get it's all it's like scoliosis. <laughs> yes, yeah, there you go. It's yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. So it That tree got distorted because another tree Mm -hmm. fell on it. The natural growth pattern of that tree would just be straight up. 
not crooked like that. That's what religion does to us. The religion says your sexuality is wrong. It pounds us, it beats us, it tells us how terrible we are, so that once we get to be teenagers, we are already we already have a distorted view of our own bodies and of sexuality and other people's bodies and other people's roles, sex roles. You know, women are here for the service of, of men and to do what God tells them to do, that kind of, of stuff. That is distorted. That's why I made this subtitle of the book, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. Hmm. And then if you look at it from a Hindu's perspective, there is Hindu sexuality. There's Muslim sexuality. There's Catholic sexuality. There's Mormon sexuality. Each one of these religions have their own sexuality, and all of them are distorting who we are as human beings, and none of them are based in science. Not one of them has a scientific basis to help us understand why do, why do some people grow up feeling, for example, feeling like they're uh, male inside, but they were were labeled female when they were born or vice versa. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a good reason for it. It it can be found in endocrinology. It can be found in developmental psychology. There's a lot of good research and knowledge that goes back a hundred years. So we know for a fact that there are biological reasons for this. You are who you are and it just happens that way. Right. It's interesting because as you're talking about how religion shapes our view of sex and sexuality. I mean, I think a lot of the same things could be said about just culture, you know, aside from religion, that the groups that we live in give us a certain impression of what's normal and what's expected. But what's the difference between religious views on sex and just general cultural ones? Excellent idea, excellent question. And I do talk about that. Um, how religion tries to marry itself to the culture. For example, if you look at Saudi Arabia right now, Saudi Arabia's culture is so totally dominated, so totally married to Islam that you couldn't separate. But in Western culture, we have endeavored with various levels of success, of course, to separate the culture from the religion. And we did that largely as a result of do a little history lesson here, the, the 30 Years' War, where Catholics and Protestants in Europe spent 30 years killing each other. And, you know, 25, 30 million people died as a result of this mutual genocide between the two groups. So we've got enormous conflicts from these two religions fighting each other. When the founding fathers came over here, they put it right into our constitution. You know, we're not going to have a state religion here because that leads to problems. We're fighting this right now. You know, we've got the evangelicals trying to tell us what we can and can't do at our national and state government. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, we, we are constantly being subjected to cultural pressures, and our culture is being subjected to pressures. I mean, look at the influence of a small 20% minority of this country is imposing its religious will on the rest of the country in, in the United States. So that's what happens Culture is semi-independent from religion, but religion's always trying to inject itself into the culture. Is culture any better than religion at resisting sort of the trap that religion gives us? Oh, no, you can't separate religion from culture completely, at least not yet. 
I, I think it's possible if you look at the Swedish government right now, you look at Denmark, they've pretty much gotten rid of all of religion out of the influence of the government. But you, no matter how you look at it, the United States was founded by a bunch of white guys that were a lot of had slaves and a lot of them believed in the Christian religion. So they brought with them ideas and those ideas were rooted in Christianity. I mean, if you if you understand what Christianity stands for in 200 AD, then you look at what did Christianity stand for in 1100 AD, and what does it stand for, you know, in 2022? You'll see it changed a hell of a lot, because the cultures themselves are changing. When the culture changes, the religion has to play catch up. Religion is always running as fast as it can to keep up with culture. So. You, you get the notion of the Mormons uh, supporting Proposition 22, anti-gay marriage in California, and they lose, they lose big time. But why are they doing that? Because they're behind the curve. California is way past where the Mormon church was going to be. And now the Mormon church is condemning children to hell, basically, if those children have gay parents. That little decision by the Mormon church, which is religiously very retrograde with respect to where the culture is, has led to thousands of people resigning from the Mormon church. People with gay children or gay people with children aren't going to disown their kids in favor of their church. Most rational ones won't. Some will. <laughs> That's Yeah, some do. I'm not, I, yeah, I know, some do, unfortunately. And we, we get those phone calls. The culture, culture is changing. It's constantly, I mean, Look at look at the influence of pop culture, pop music. Does it set around away? I wonder what the church thinks about this song. Do you think Britney Spears thinks about, you know, is the Pope going to like my song this time or not? <laughs> no, no. Britney Spears doesn't give a damn what the Pope thinks. And she moves on her own way. Uh, science. Does science sit around anymore and think, I wonder if, you know, my preacher is going to approve of my genetics research over here in the laboratory. No, science just keeps moving. Pop culture keeps moving. The church does not. The church tries to stay the same. You know, God's word now and forever. They, they try to tell us that God's word never changes. Well, God's word changes about every 20 years or so. Women could not go into my family church with pants on during any kind of service, Sunday or Wednesday or anytime. You, you had to have a dress on or you, you were violating God's word. Well, now I doubt there's a single woman on Sunday morning that doesn't have pants on, mm. but she still believes that abortion's murder. <laughs> so, you know, it's crazy how these things get mixed up and the culture is always, always ahead of the church, at least in Western culture, it is. And if you look at other places like Hindu culture and Muslim culture, look at Iran right now. Iran is having tens of thousands of people, women mainly, showing up to protest the Ayatollah's hardline ideology on women. Mm -hmm. And so these women get it. They know there's better worlds for them out there, and they want it where they live now. But the Ayatollahs are still trying to hold them back. They're trying to put them in jail. They've literally arrested 14,000 people in the last few weeks, and they're threatening to execute them all. Wow. You know, that's that's like mind-boggling. Executing 14,000 mostly women for, yeah. for not obeying your yeah. 
that shows how far back the religion is. And Islam is farther, much farther back than Christianity is, but they're both always behind the culture. I feel like there's a really interesting topic there about just like culture and religion and how they impact each other. Um, and, and I definitely agree with what you're saying about how religion is, is the most toxic when it's, it's trying to fight what culture and science especially have figured out. Well, and so going back to sexuality, how, how do you see religion impacting the sexual development of a lot of the folks that you encounter? Oh yeah. Well, we we see the whole the whole spectrum. I think the most obvious that has really impacted religion as a whole has been the LGBTQ movement. There's no doubt that having an out and proud gay person among your friends can influence the way you you think about that person. It is influencing the way religions are responding. I mean, there's a few religions that are starting to get the message. I mean, some of the Episcopalians, not all of them by a long shot, mm -hmm. some of the more liberal religions, you know, the religions that are letting women be clergy are also being friendly to LGBTQ community, of course. But that's still a small percentage, probably of all the churches in North America, probably not more than 20% are progressive enough to allow women to be clergy or allow LGBT people to be open and out. And then you have other things like, um, what's his name that wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He wrote a book like that. Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris. He writes the, the book at 19 years old. What does a 19-year-old know about dating, about sex, about human sex? He doesn't know anything. And now he's an out atheist and he's apologizing for all the harm that he did, well, what is the harm that he did? He perpetuated purity culture. And that's that's one of the biggest harms I'm seeing is purity culture really pushes people to buy into this, the notion that your body is your enemy. If you're feeling sexual urges, that's the devil talking to you. Hmm. You have to pledge purity until you're married. You can only have sex inside of marriage. Oh, and by the way, once you're inside a marriage, there's only certain kind of sex that's allowed there too. I've I've talked to a former Pentecostal minister. He was a minister for 19 years, and he had uh, three kids. He and his wife had three kids, but during that time, he was terrified. He and his wife were terrified of their sexuality because of their childhood training. It took them three years to have sex for the first time. Hmm. Three years. But yet they were told that on your wedding night, it will be the most glorious thing. You will find sex to be wonderful and Jesus will be there with you. By the way, that's if you truly believe that Jesus is in your bedroom with you, then you're having a threesome with Jesus is what it amounts to. <laughs> the guy's voyeuristic, if anything. So there's a lot of, I mean, I wrote a whole book on this, obviously, Anna, so I can't possibly go over it all. Mm -hmm. so there's so much... Once you start scratching below the surface, you start really examining what does religion do to you and your sexuality, you'll find that many, many of the beliefs, even people who've long left religion, still feel guilt about masturbating, still feel guilt about looking at pornography, still feel guilt about, you know, let's do some kinky stuff. I know so many people who are from religious that just can't quite wrap their head around alternate sexualities than just missionary position once a month. 
And uh, that ain't going to work for a lot of people. And the problem is, if it doesn't work, what happens to their sexuality? What do they do with that? Mm. And that's where problems start coming in. For example, I know so many atheists who still think there's such a thing as sex addiction or porn addiction. The evidence for this is zero, and there's no diagnosis for it. Three different committees over 20 years have tried to define what is sex addiction, what is porn addiction. If experts from three different committees over a 20-year time period can't come to a scientific definition of what it is, then maybe we should stop talking about that. Maybe we should start looking at compulsion or obsessions, and we can treat those. But when you bring the notion of sex addiction in, which every church loves, they love the notion of sex addiction. Mm -hmm. Because it's a religious idea. Sex addiction is a religious idea. It's not a scientific idea. You can't define it scientifically. I know people who have trouble with sex. I know people who have supposedly trouble with porn. I can't tell you how many people said, that, wow, when I, I used to think I was a porn addict until I got away from Jesus. And now I still like porn, but I'm not an addict anymore. I've got a much better relationship with my partner, for example. Over and over again, I see people, when I left religion, I was able to take ownership of my sexuality and find out who I am. Mm. I mean, think about this. You're born and raised as a straight child. But about 18 or 19, you realize I've got a strong attraction to, you know, who would be identified as the same sex as I am. What do I do with that? If, if I was raised to believe there's only two sexes, the gender binary and only one sexuality. Uh, you can only be attracted to the opposite of those of that gender binary. Wow, you know, I'm 18 now and I'm not feeling it, <laughs> or I'm feeling it a different way than they told me to. What do I do with that? And there's no church, or very few churches. The Unitarians are doing a darn good job. They have a great sex education program called Our Whole Lives. I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I really want people to examine this notion of sex addiction because it's become such a big deal among evangelicals and Catholics. Why? Oh, because it's another way to grab you. It's another purity culture idea. The spokesperson for the entire Catholic Church about five years ago at a conference got up and said, if you've looked at porn once, you are a porn addict. <laughs> wow. If that's his definition of porn addiction, that's, that's pretty wild. Because about every human being on the planet has looked at porn, <laughs> at least in some way, shape, or form. And porn's been around forever. I mean, just they had a tour of the Pompeii exhibit came through Kansas City, where I live, a few years ago. And Pompeii was filled with porn. I mean, it was like porn central in, in Rome. So that tells us porn's been around a long time. So if, if you don't think that sex addiction and porn addiction are legitimate things, do you think that other sort of behavioral addictions like um, gambling addiction or video game addiction, like are those legitimate or do they fall into the same category of sort of stigma has demonized it? I am not going to say there's nothing there in, in terms of gambling addiction. Let me Let me frame it a little bit differently. Maybe there is something like uh, gambling addiction. Is there Facebook addiction too? Is there Twitter addiction too? You know, there's all sorts of things that can grab our attention. 
and distract us from what we want to do. Are we going to call all these things addictions? I mean, I know a guy who spends his whole waking moment just researching Civil War memorabilia, and his wife complains about it. Okay, is he a Civil War memorabilia addict? I don't know. You know, I just think it's stupid to call these things addictions. I may become obsessed with something, and there may be a reason why I'm obsessed. Mm. And what I was trying to um, illustrate when I talked about people who left religion was the guilt, the shame of purity culture seems to very to drive the very thing that you're trying to get away from. Mm. The church says, don't think of a pink elephant. Now, if your listeners just listened, I'll bet a pink elephant jumped into their head. <laughs> right. So the church says, don't think of sex. Don't think of sex. Don't think of sex. Of course, what's that do? Every time it makes you think of sex. So the church is actually driving you to the very behavior it says for you not to do. And therein starts the guilt, the shame. I even, I don't know if you've gotten to that part in my book, The God Virus, about the, the guilt cycle. Not yet, but I've I've definitely done a lot of personal reflection on that very topic. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So how many people, you know, are get get into the guilt and shame cycle? Mm-hmm. I've illustrated, there's even a little illustration in the book on how the guilt cycle works. But if you are taught that you're guilty and you're shamed, I mean, some some cultures use guilt, other cultures use shame but they each play a role in keeping you bound to the purity culture. Mm. That's the purpose of guilt and shame. Are you ashamed of eating bacon in the morning? No. Okay. But if you were Jewish, you would. Mm. If you were Muslim, you would. Most shame and guilt are learned. I mean, it's, it's not extinctual. It's cultural. So you have to learn what to be guilty of, what to be shamed of. If you were raised in the Manganian culture, you would be wide open about your sexuality. You'd be wide open about masturbation. It's no big deal. If you were raised in the um, Iroquois culture a thousand years ago, in the longhouse, you go back to the corner where you sleep and you have sex with your partner. 80 other people are coming in and out and they just kind of ignore you. It's not a big deal because there's no privacy. There's no concept of privacy. So you learn guilt and shame from your culture. And some cultures are more shame-oriented, others more guilt-oriented. But all of these religiously dominated cultures use sex as the main driver of guilt and shame. Not food. We in North America are not ashamed of our bacon consumption, but we're darn ashamed of our, of our masturbation and our porn consumption. Do you think that the religious leaders who are, you know, preaching these sermons against, you know, having sex outside of marriage or against being gay, do you think that it's an intentional act to enslave people or or do you think that they sincerely believe that it's what's good for them? Well, you've got to remember they're victims of the same system. Now, I'm not saying they're not charlatans out there. I'm, I'm quite sure they are. I, I have known some that I'm positive with charlatans. But most of them, most of them are quite sincere and they're trapped in the same system. I mean, I remember that Pentecostal minister I mentioned earlier. For 19 years, he was preaching against 
sex outside of marriage and masturbation and oh sex is the once wonderful thing within marriage even as he was not experiencing that himself but he was very dedicated to it at recovering from religion we work with another organization a sister organization called the clergy project and i've talked to hundreds of ministers over the years and they're all they all tell me the same thing it's almost all men of course uh, these men said when i was in the ministry i preached for this stuff i preached against sex outside of marriage, I preached against masturbation, and I hurt lots and lots of people. And some even became suicidal as a result of my preaching. Now that is a heavy burden. Hmm. If you're standing up there telling a gay kid, basically you're going to hell, and then that gay kid starts having suicidal ideation, who's responsible for that? And these guys are saying, I was all in until I finally figured it out. They were victims of the same system. I'm not one to sit here and say preachers are evil. I'm here to say most preachers that I've been, and priests too, are victims of the very system that they're propagating. They got infected with the God virus, and now they're trying to infect other people. They're all trying to infect people with their particular God virus. So how how do we get disinfected with the God virus? You know, like if if we're trying to sort of deconstruct from that worldview, especially related to sexuality, how do we do that? Oh, we got another three hours here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a, it varies a lot from person to person. I think some people have a much easier job of it. I think personally, I did not suffer that much. I did suffer some. I still had some guilt and shame as I, you know, became an adult and moved through my own my own journey. And and I think that's probably true of half the people. Half the people who leave a religion don't seem to suffer a lot of consequences. They figure out how to deal with their sexuality. I mean, I I know gay women and men who were raised in this stuff and they look back and say, Yeah, it's all bullshit. I'm openly gay now, and my family knows it. And if they don't like it, it's their problem. And there, they seem to do just fine. There's another probably up to 50% that it seemed to catch, it seemed to take with them in a way that really uh, stifled them, made them feel really ashamed of their bodies and, and guilty. Mm. And it may just be, you know, how they were, you know, if you were beaten regularly for not learning your Bible lessons, if you were shamed by your whole family because they caught you masturbating, Either one of those could cause trauma in the child at five, six, 10 years old. If you were taught these things from very early on and you were traumatized because of the behaviors, I mean, think of this. I, we have had this so many times. I, it's just infuriating. A 16, 18-year-old girl who's been raised in this purity culture and her family or her minister or Sunday school teacher finds out that she's had sex outside of marriage, and they make her go in front of the entire congregation. They don't make the guy, by the way. They make her go in front of the congregation and confess her sins to everybody. How can that not be traumatizing? Yeah. I can look at, every day I can go online, I can look at the chats that are coming into Recovering from Religion, hundreds of chats, thousands of chats a year, and I can see religious trauma over and over and over again. And so much of it is related to sexuality. Hmm. Probably a minimum of half of all the people who chat in with us are dealing with uh, some issue related to their own sexuality. 
Now, it can be combined with something else. I'm scared to death of hell, for example, mm -hmm. or I'm losing my relationships with my family. You can have all three of those, of course. But sexuality is pretty high on the list of things that we hear from our chat and calls. Yeah. In all of your studies of different religions, have you ever found one that doesn't have any sort of like sexual repression component? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, Wicca seems to be okay. Paganism okay. seems to be okay. Mm -hmm. Quakers, they're very sex positive. Unitarians, very sex positive. So yeah, there are some. How many, how many Unitarians are there on the planet? You know, how many Quakers are there on the planet? They're just not that many. Mm -hmm. The greater scheme of things, if you go back at least 3,000 years, there are very few patriarchal religions, or there are far fewer patriarchal religions. Now, I, I want to put a caveat in here. We study our history, and we go back to Samaria, for example, or Jericho, or we go back to Babylonian. All those were patriarchal cultures with patriarchal religion, because the religion almost always looks like the culture in that situation. But if you go much farther back, the history we study is a tiny, tiny fraction of the bigger history of this planet. So yeah, the king of Babylon was a patriarchal jerk who killed people for being gay, maybe. But what about what about the uh, hunter-gatherer tribe in Central Africa? What were they doing at that time? What's the history of sexuality in South Vietnam at that time? We are so myopic about what history is and what sexuality is. We think all that goes back to that one little time when there was a patriarchal religion that started the Jewish religion, that then started the Christian religion, that started the Muslim religion, and Hinduism has its own line, of course. But 3,000, 4,000 years ago, most of the people on this planet had a different sexuality, and it was not a patriarchal sexuality. And that's what I go into some detail in the book, Sex and God. I look at a lot of different cultures, and I say... 10,000 years ago, here's what most cultures looked like. They didn't look like what we got now. And if you look around us, you think Christian sexuality is, is the norm. No, Christian sexuality is a perverted anomaly. This is not the way humans biologically would have developed if we didn't have Christianity infiltrating and injecting its viral self into our, our culture. Hmm. What would you say to uh, to religious folks who perpetuate purity culture by saying, well, it's it's keeping unwanted pregnancies from happening and it's it's decreasing uh, the incidence of STDs? Oh, well, but there's no evidence for that. So that that's that's my first thing. Show me the evidence. Uh, we did research back in 2012. I did a huge survey, uh, me and my research partner. We got 14,960 people to take an online survey that had 69 questions in it. And that number was not intentional, <laughs> <laughs> but it was 69 questions dealing with sexuality, but it was by atheists only. That was our filter. We only wanted atheists to fill this survey out. And the main question we were looking at was, what happened to your sexuality when you left religion? And about 80% of all the people who were answered uh, our survey had been born and raised in some kind of a patriarchal religious family. 
The other 20% were, were atheists their whole lives. So this gives us a really great way to compare and contrast. We compare the born and raised an atheist and what their sexuality looked like against a whole bunch of religions. Because we ask people, what was the religion you were born in? Were you born in Muslim, uh, Mormon, Baptist? You know, what was it? And we also ask them, how much guilt or shame were you taught on a scale of one to 10? What we found was people raised in purity culture started having sex at about the same time, about, I'll give you, I'll caveat that in a minute, about the same time as kids who weren't raised in purity culture. Because we have this enormous sample and a good number of these people were raised in purity culture. And they said, I was forced to put a ring on. I was forced to promise I wouldn't in front of my father and I wouldn't have sex before marriage and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And we, when we put those two groups together, we asked them, when did you first have penetrative sex? or some other version of sex. We had a whole list of sexual acts. And what we found was teenagers who'd been raised in purity culture started their sexual activity about three months later than those who hadn't been. Now, what's the difference? The ones with purity culture said, we didn't use condoms. Huh. The kids who were raised you know, without purity culture, they were using condoms. They were using birth control. How many of these people who were raised in purity culture had children out of wedlock or children as teenagers, it was far higher than the kids who had been raised without purity culture. The more religious you are, the more likely you are to have sex without protection and without birth control. So the highest birth rates in the United States, the highest out of wedlock birth rates, and I hate that word out of wedlock, but the highest number of teenage pregnancies is in the most religious states in the nation, specifically Mississippi. Yeah. Alabama, those kinds of places, you know, nobody's using birth control and yet they're acting like normal human beings. Humans have enormous drives, male and female, and we want to have sex. And we really want to have it when we're 16, 17, 18 years old. I know I was one of those. So we've got these adults up here, 40, 50 years old, telling kids don't have sex when they themselves had sex. They themselves are masturbating. They themselves are using porn. And yet they're trying to tell an 18-year-old who has raging hormones not to do what the adults themselves could not resist. Hmm. That's the hypocrisy in all this. That minister who stood up this Sunday morning and said, don't masturbate, probably jacked off sometime this week. Around 90 to 95% of all North Americans have sex before marriage. And that's that's not me. That's um, that's several different surveys of human sexuality in the United, North America. So if 90 to 95 percent have sex before marriage, that means most of those religious people did, too. The only people who didn't have sex before marriage are Catholic priests because they never got married, but they're still having sex. <laughs> <laughs> maybe with each other, maybe with little boys. I don't know. But mm. there, it's just there's so few people who will who will abide by those rules. I had a girlfriend. We had a long-distance dating relationship for three years. She was a fundamentalist Nazarene. Mm. And she would always come to my house, or we would go to a motel somewhere, and we'd, you know, we'd have sex like bunny rabbits. But she was a Sunday school teacher, and she was telling kids in that Sunday school class not to have sex outside of marriage. I mean, I, I liked her. I enjoyed her. I thought maybe sooner or later she'd get rid of this religious stuff, but she didn't. I met her 20 years later in the airport. And, oh, she was embarrassed to talk to me. I was, it was really Aww. awkward, awkward, because we were good friends. 
She was a normal human being with a high sex drive, and yet she had to go tell children in Sunday school that she was pure, that she was a virgin. That's what she told them. And she probably hated herself. Oh, yeah. She had lots and lots of shame and guilt. And then when she met me in the airport, it was like, oh, shit, I don't want to talk to this guy. Now, I didn't know that at first. So I sat down with her and started talking when they realized, oh, she just she did not want me here. <laughs> so we we politely separated. But it was just a shame because I could just see the shame and guilt. You know, she was 20 years older and yet she was even more consumed by the shame and guilt. She'd never gotten rid of it. Yeah. When you work with people coming out of religion, what are some of the success stories that you've seen because of it? Well, it it comes in two ways. Of course, we're peer support. So people will call into us or chat into us and we will try to work with them as peers, as lay people. I'm not doing therapy for all of them. If somebody needs therapy, we'll we'll send them on over to the secular therapy project where we've got sex positive therapists that are going to really help them. I have had so many people say, I found a therapist through the secular therapy project. They were better than any therapist I've ever had because they didn't try to put religion or spirituality into their therapy. Hmm. So many therapists can't get rid of this spirituality bullshit. There's nothing empirical about spirituality. It's it's supernatural. So how do you put supernatural into a scientific system that's going to help you deal with your depression? It just doesn't. If Jesus would have worked 2,000 years ago on depression, it ain't working today. It never worked. So that's where I see a lot of, when I speak at a conferences, it almost never happens that somebody doesn't come up to me and say, when I left religion, I needed help. I found the secular therapy project and I got a great therapist. Hmm. That piece really is inspiring. It, yeah. it makes me get up in the morning. It makes me want to help people even more. Within Recovering from Religion, so many people have said, I chatted in, I called in, I had a compassionate person on the other side, not a therapist, I'll just remind you of that, but they were compassionate. They listened to me. They responded appropriately without judgment. Mm-hmm. And they pointed me to books or resources or YouTube videos. And I was able to do my own research and I'm, I'm doing so much better now. Or I was able to go to a group in Seattle, Washington and sit down with 10 other people and tell my story, hmm. get it all out there. And here's the interesting, hear other people's stories. Because I think what you're doing is admirable. I love what you're doing, and you're, you're doing great work. Because Recovery Religion, that was how this whole thing started. 11 people coming to a restaurant back room and sharing stories. That alone is cathartic. It's therapeutic. In those first two meetings that I did, we had X. Mormons, we had ex Mooney. We had an ex Mooney. You you know what Mooney is, you know? I do. Yeah, ex Mooney. We had two gay 70 plus year old men, and they're both gay. They're both musicians in their churches, and they didn't know each other. They showed up at the same meeting, not knowing each other, and they're both the gay choir director and the gay organist. (laughs) That validated them, right? I mean, that's so validating when you can talk to somebody else. Yeah. Tell them your story, hear their story, have a moderator there that makes sure it's a safe place. Nobody's going to get judged. We we outline the rules. We got a whole little speech we give. Here's what we do in this meeting. If you don't want to do it, leave. It's that simple. We don't put up with bullshit. And if it's psychologically safe, people can do a lot of their own therapy. Mm-hmm. I don't I am not a person who thinks everybody needs a psychotherapist. I think a large number of people sooner or later could benefit 
in their lifespan. I mean, I've gone to a therapist three different times over my life, and it was very beneficial for dealing with the issues I had at that moment. But I think most people can do what they need to do by listening, sharing stories, reading resources, calling or chatting with a well-trained volunteer like ours. So I'm I'm a little leery of just saying, well, go talk to your best friend. Your best friend might be a uh, you know, fundamentalist. Yeah. <laughs> probably not going to help you very much. Although we almost always ask our clients, do you have somebody in your life you can talk to that's safe? We do advise that. But that's not a substitute for therapy. It's not a substitute right. for you know, getting and sharing stories. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. The power of hearing other people tell their stories, it gives you hope. Well, Daryl, we have been asking everybody at the end of each episode to share a story about some kind of religious culture related thing that is funny or ironic uh, I'm sure you have many, many to choose from. Oh, I will tell you a funny personal story. Good. I was dating this uh, good Catholic girl. It was, a, it was a year or so after I got divorced. And I started dating her. We just hit it off. Anyway, uh, most of the time she would come to my house. She had an apartment about 20 miles away. So I didn't go there very often. It was before cell phones. This is 1989 when this happened. I'm in her neighborhood. So I just decided to drop in on her. It wasn't inappropriate or anything. It was just, they didn't have cell phones then, you know? Right. So uh, I had been to her apartment several times. We only dated for like six months or so before she moved out of town. But anyway, let's, let's call her Judy. Judy was home. She let me into her, her apartment. I come in, I look around. But when I looked at her bedroom, I saw a crucifix. I saw a Bible. I saw a rosary. I saw all this religious shit. <laughs> and I had been in her bedroom before. I, it's never there before. So I said, well, hey, Judy, where'd all this come from? And she said, well, Daryl, I take it down if I know you're coming over because I, I just can't come with Jesus watching me. <laughs> <laughs> she obviously felt like she needed to put it all back up when you left. Well, then Jesus wasn't watching when, she, when I'm not there. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. that was, I just, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me. I just can't come with Jesus watching me. Well, I guess, I guess that <laughs> reveals something about her theology. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, too, uh, it was unfortunate because her Catholic, her cat, mm. her Catholicism really got in the way of, of her sexuality. Uh. And she always felt guilty as hell afterwards. In fact, that was part of what led to us breaking up. She just, I can't, she literally said this. The last time I saw her, oh. I can't do this anymore. The guilt's too much. Yeah. That was her, that was her very words. So that could have been a very constructive, maybe even lifelong relationship had she not been consumed with guilt yeah. and shame about her sexuality. It's a terrible shame because she yeah. was a loving, kind, wonderful person who I, I could have easily seen myself having a very long-term relationship with, but she couldn't deal with that. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much from both of your books and the work that you've done over the years. I appreciate it so much. Well, you're welcome. I would like to put a plug in for our uh, fundraiser. Absolutely. It's our fall fundraiser. And all the money goes straight to help support recovering from religion. But even if you don't want to donate, can't donate, not your thing, I'm okay with that. Let people know about us. Repost our stuff. Every Monday night, we have a really good, uh, we call it RFRX. It's a Monday night program, lasts about an hour and a half. 
where we all have a guest speaker who could be literally world-class in whatever they're doing. They get a, we get some really good speakers talking about everything from, you know, how they got out of Orthodox Judaism to, you know, latest in human sexuality. And if you need help, if you're struggling, and I know many of your listeners are struggling, hit the chat button. Our number is 84-I-DOUBT-IT. It's that simple. And you can call from any of the five countries. You can chat in from anywhere in the world, and you can web call us from anywhere in the world, too. So we would be glad to talk to you. We'll be glad to share resources with you. And um, hopefully you can heal from your own your own journey of through through high control or fundamentalist or whatever kind of religious trauma you experienced. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gerald. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Anna. Have a good afternoon. Hey. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye. Bye.